You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, it's great to see you this morning. You need to grab your Bible and turn to 1 Peter. We're going to be here for a while, so settle in as far as in 1 Peter. Hopefully not, not forever today, but in 1 Peter, we're going to be here for uh, several months. And so, uh, man, we just want to invite you to plant your life in the middle of this book um, with us as we study through it. That you would make this, um, as far as your family, an object of what you're studying right now. That you would live in this book with us. That you'd plant your life in, the, in this book, these five chapters, 105 verses. That you would know these things. This would be a season that you study this with us. And uh, with that, we, we've provided a few resources that I, I hope will help you out in that. Um, we, we've got on our website, under the resource little section there, um, some articles on First Peter, um, on authorship and themes of First Peter. Uh, from uh, recipients of 1 Peter, kind of the purposes of 1 Peter. We've got uh, family devotions on 1 Peter that are there for you. We're going to be sending those out through the city as well. So they kind of basically break it into night, kind of dinner time, night-sized chunks that give you a word or two to kind of run over with your family over the dinner table. So we invite you to live in it with us. If you're a dad in the room, I think it would be a great move for you to grab those family devotions and make that just a part of your routine for the next um, several months as we um, work through this together. We've also got the uh, whole book broken down into memorizable chunks. For those of you who get ambitious and want to try to memorize the book of the Bible, it would be a great one to commit to memory. And so all of that is there on the, uh, on the website for you. We'd encourage you to grab those things and to live there with us um, for the next, yeah, probably three, four, almost four to, yeah, four months or so, something like that. We'll see. Um, it always, yeah, changes in the middle of it. But, um, so that, that's where we're going to be. So this morning, I want to um, start by providing four reasons why um, we're, we're studying the book of 1 Peter. And the last one will kind of launch us into where we want to go um, for the morning. So four reasons why. Here's the first one. Be on the screen for you as well. Number one, 1 Peter is a comprehensive book. And what I mean by that is it wades into a ton of different waters. It addresses a lot of different aspects of living. As just a general reading of 1 Peter would show you that there is a vast territory of things covered in the book. Listen to one commentary, Wayne Grudem, as he describes kind of this idea. Um, it's going to be on the screen for you. In only 105 verses, 1 Peter ranges over a wild field of, a wide field of Christian theology and ethics. Here is the great doctrine of redemption from, from its conception before the foundation of the world to its consummation in our receiving an inheritance that will never fade away. Here are repeated calls to holiness and to humble trust in God for each day's needs. Here is practical counsel for marriage, for work, for relating to the government, for witnessing to unbelievers, for using spiritual gifts, for serving as an, a church officer. Here also is profound comfort in sorrow and insight as far as God allows into the deep mysteries of suffering. Here's the majestic beauty of the church as a spiritual temple in which we daily offer spiritual sacrifices pleasing to God. And here is Jesus, the chief shepherd who cares for us, the example who leads us, the chosen cornerstone who establishes and unites us, and the Savior who bore our sins in his body on the cross, the one whom, not having seen, we love. The glory of Christ shines forth from this letter into the hearts of all who read it. God's words in First Peter will richly repay serious study, memorization, and meditation. And that's true. You're going to see over the next several months that we're going to deal with a variety of issues and aspects that, that are going to confront a ton of different parts of your life. It wades into a ton of different waters. And, and we really just don't wade into them like we're knee deep, sometimes over our head in these waters. So this is First Peter. I love what one commentator said about it. He said, the first epistle of St. Peter, the most condensed uh, New Testament resume of the Christian faith and of the conduct that it inspires is a model of a pastoral letter. And here's one of the things I look forward to for us over the next few months is we get to let Peter, a good shepherd of the early church, pastor and shepherd us. So I look forward to it. I think it's going to be really beneficial for us in that way. It's a comprehensive book. Secondly, and this is one of the primary reasons I wanted to, to go after 1 Peter, is 1 Peter is a book that deals with suffering. It deals with suffering. And I've told you this several times, but I feel like one of my primary callings as your pastor is to make sure our church body is equipped to suffer. 
is to prepare you to suffer. And so I want you just to trace this theme with me through 1 Peter because it's gonna do some of that for us. It is a perfect book to walk through, to deepen our roots in the gospel, to prepare us for difficult days that are looming for all of us, right? So trace this with me. You're gonna need to follow along. So if you don't have your Bible open, make sure it's open, 1 Peter. Um, we're gonna look at, kind of scan through the book for, for these passages that deal with suffering. So look at verse six of chapter one. You see it first show up there. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. The background of this book has dark hues behind it. The people of God are suffering various trials. They are people in in conflict, in a hostile environment. This is the people that that you're reading here about. Um, Go to uh, chapter 2, verse 19. Chapter 2, verse 19 says, For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. Going to be a key idea for us. Suffering unjustly. Verse 21, coming down there. For to, you, for to this you have been called. Now think about this. To this you have been called as a Christian. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his step. So, you know, when you think about suffering, suffering can can come about because we live in a fallen world. Suffering can come about because you sin periodically. That can cause suffering for you. And suffering can also come about because you're living a life of faith. And this is what's happening to the people in this letter. They're not suffering because of their sin. They're suffering because of what the gospel has done to them. That's why they're suffering. They're suffering unjustly. Okay, keep reading down in in chapter 3 with me. Verse 14, chapter three, verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, so they're suffering because of of gospel transformation that's happened. But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Verse 17, coming down there. For it is better to suffer for doing good. Now listen to this phrase. If that should be God's will, you should suffer. It's better, it's, it's better for suffering for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. So First Peter is going to wade into the mysteries of suffering and the sovereignty of God. And he's going to say a lot more than I'm about to say here, and we're going to say a lot more than I'm about to say. But here's one thing that Peter definitely says, is that all of our suffering fits squarely under the sovereignty of God. Who, who Isaiah says planned the end from the beginning. That you will never go through a moment of suffering in your life that is out from underneath that sovereignty. You'll never do that. That that all of our suffering is under the sovereignty of God. That there is a way in which all of our suffering is the will of God. There's more to say than that, but that's one thing that Peter's going to make sure is said here. And listen, this flies right in the face of so much contemporary teaching in the church that teaches this idea of a prosperity gospel, that if you will just believe hard enough, have enough faith, just pray hard enough, that surely your cancer would go away right? That that surely you would be healthy, wealthy, and wise. Surely that would happen. Peter literally like throws an elbow and then drop kicks that idea, right? I mean, he's saying right here that 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 is not the way the economy of God works, that under the sovereignty of God, that saints can have deep anguish in their soul. Under the sovereignty of God, that, that there can be difficult, difficult days for us. He says that, that we can suffer underneath the will of God. Okay, keep coming down here in, verse, or in chapter 4, verse 1. He says, Since therefore Christ, uh, Christ suffered in the flesh, I, I love this idea. He says, Arm yourselves. Like, get ready for this. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Look at verse 12 in, 12 in chapter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised. I mean, don't, don't count this as strange. Arm yourselves. Don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. I love what one pastor says, that that Christianity is a life of painful joy. Isn't that true? It is a life of painful joy. That we should not count it strange when difficult days come for us. If they came for Christ, like if Christ suffered, if suffering came for Jesus, I think it would be normal for his followers to expect it to come from them, wouldn't you? That we need to arm ourselves in this way. And this is one of the things I I pray that that would happen to us over the next few months is that God would arm us with this way of thinking. That that when difficult days come, when tragedy strikes, when we find ourselves in the crucible, when the furnace of just heart-wrenching affliction comes for you, which it's inevitable, it's coming for you, right? That we would be prepared for that. That, That we would have this way of thinking leading into that. It is a terrible thing to try to cope with suffering and try to to build a theology of suffering while you're in the middle of it. 
And so may this be a season that God arms us, God prepares us with this way of thinking. Okay, keep coming down in verse um, 16. Chapter 4, verse 16. Peter says, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. And look at verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer, and here, here comes the sovereignty of God again, according to God's will. Those who suffer according to God's will. And look what he says here. Entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And, and this is one of my hopes for us, that God would make us great sufferers. And can I just tell you, like, today the NFL season kind of kicks off, right? And here's what you're going to see happen today. There's going to be a guy who scores a touchdown. He's going to bow his knee at the end of the end zone. And he's going to kind of give props to God, maybe stick a finger up in the air, beat his chest, and kind of look up at thanking God for it. And can I just say, no one's impressed by that. No one's impressed by that. No, no one is impressed when good things are happening if you're li- li- in your life if, if you're thanking God for that. But let me tell you what shocks the world when you take an uppercut and then an elbow and and then you you bow on your knees and then you entrust your soul to a faithful creator. That's what's shocking. Now I pray that God would, would send our roots deep enough into the gospel that we would suffer in that way. That that when the uppercut comes for you, right? I mean it's it's coming. And when it comes for you, that there would be a humble trust in your faithful creator, God, that loves you, that gave his son for you. There would be a humble trust in that. Keep coming down to chapter 5, verse 9 and 10. Peter says, resist him, talking about the devil, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And if you want to know how we can suffer well, verse 10, look at this. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. I mean, there is a sense in which Peter, um, in 1 Peter, we we literally walk the valley of the shadow of the death with these recipients of this letter. But I love how Pastor Peter reminds him that there will be a day because of the work of Jesus that you suffer no more. That God will strengthen, confirm, do do all of these things in you and for you. Isn't that a great thing to know? Isn't that a great hope to live with in the midst of really difficult seasons of your life? I love what one commentator says. It deals with the suffering portion of this book. He says, if therefore you want to preach on a book which will focus on Christ and assist believers in living as Christians amidst opposition and suffering, and that's what we want to do. If, you, if you're going for that, that's what you're preaching for, that, that, that Christians would live in the midst of opposition and suffering for the glory of God, then 1 Peter is an extremely appropriate choice. And I pray that God might, might do some of these sorts of things as it relates to suffering in us um, over the next few months. Number three, third reason why we're preaching First Peter. Number three, it's a motivator for the mission of God. I love the logic of First Peter. I love it. Here's, here's First Peter chapter one. Essentially, Peter is going to ground us in the gospel. He's going to say, this is what God has done for you. This is all that he has accomplished for you in Jesus. This is the gospel. Then in chapter two, he's going to say, this is how you live out the gospel. This is what a gospel life looks like. essentially it's chapter one, this is the gospel. Chapter two, now in light of the gospel, live in such a way that demands a gospel explanation for your life. Like live in such a way that demands that only the gospel would produce that sort of a life. The way you submit to authority. I mean, you should be living in such a way that the gospel demands how you do that. That the way you respond to a difficult marriage, that we should be living in such a way that the gospel is the only answer to why we would do that. That the way that, that we endure suffering, that only the gospel could explain that. That that is the only, the way we work, that only the gospel could explain that. And then in chapter 3 and verse 15, he's going to say this. And when people ask you about that, when conversation arouses around your life that demands a gospel explanation, then be ready to give a gospel explanation for that. It's not because of your personality. It's because God's grace that you can do that. Right? I love the logic of 1 Peter. It is a book that should move us to be more faithful and more fruitful missionaries of Jesus. And I pray it does that for us. It moves to the mission of God. And fourthly, and this is where we're going to camp today. It solidifies our identity as a Christian. 
It, it gives good, solid, dense kind of teaching on, on who you are as a Christian, on, on what you are as a Christian. So this is going to take us to the first two verses, which we'll cover today. First Peter 1 and 2. So flip back to the first chapter. First Peter 1 and 2. It starts like this. Okay, now we're under this heading of solidifying our identity in Jesus. First Peter 1 and 2. First four um, or five words of the letter starts like this. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. There's six, six words. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Peter is probably the, the easiest person in the New Testament to identify with, isn't he? I mean, at one moment, he has got these bold and courageous moves that he makes. Like, I will never deny you. So he's got these great moments of faith. And then in the next moment, these terrible moments of unbelief. I I mean, so he's got this, I'll never deny you moment. And then the next moment, he's around a fire and a servant girl at the inquisition of a servant girl. Weren't you with Jesus? I mean, completely. Who's Jesus? I don't know that guy. Right? Do you remember this story? So you just see these bold moves in his life and these cowardly moves. In Galatians 2, you see the same fear of man kind of pop back up, where around this group of people, he acts this way, and around that group of people, he acts this, you know, another way. So so you just see this, this guy, he's relatable. I mean, he just feels really human, doesn't he? He's a guy that owned a fishing company. Um, essentially a little small business before Jesus called him. He met Jesus through his brother, Andrew. He was later called by Jesus to be a follower of his. He was later then called to be one of the 12. This is why he, he calls himself and identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Um, generally speaking, that would be a sent one or a missionary of Jesus, one commissioned with the gospel of Jesus, which would be all of us in general. But specifically, it would refer to one of the 12, his disciples. And, and within those disciples, Peter was also one of the three that would kind of form the inner circle around Jesus. This inner three, James, John, and Peter, they got to go with, with Jesus into places that the, the other nine didn't get to go. They got to see things that the other nine didn't get to see. So our author, Peter, was a man who lived with Jesus, a man who walked with Jesus, Jesus, discipled by Jesus, a man who spent several years of his life with Jesus. This is the author of our, of our book here. And listen, Peter looms large in the New Testament. Every time you see, there's four times when all 12 disciples are listed, and every one of those lists start with Peter. And, and here's the reason for that. He was the identifiable spokesman and leader of the early church. Uh, of these 12 disciples. So, so you see at Pentecost, he is the one who preaches the sermon. 3,000 people are saved and the New Testament church is inaugurated. He, he is, if you just keep reading through the book of Acts, he is the identifiable leader, the spokesman for, for the early church. He, he is the man that God entrusted with that role of leading that movement of Christianity in the early days of it. So, so this is Peter. He, he, he is a really human I mean, he just feels like us in so many ways. One moment, it's this great, courageous man. Another moment, it's this cowardly, who is Jesus? M- much like you and I, isn't it? Much like you and I. And, and you know what I love about Peter? Is he is a great monument to the grace of God. He is a picture of the patience of God, and he is a picture of the power of God's redeeming grace, who takes that wavering man and makes him, transforms him into a world-changing servant of Jesus. I I pray that maybe as we start to look at some of this, that God would start to do those sorts of things in some of us in here. This is Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And look at the next phrase that he says here. To those who are elect exiles. I want you to maybe just circle those words, elect exiles of the dispersion uh, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So he is writing to a group of Christians spread throughout the Roman Empire in what today would be modern, you know, modern day Turkey. Spread throughout modern day Turkey across the Roman Empire. That, that's the recipients. They're in a hostile environment. They are a suffering people. They are suffering saints. That They're in a, a, a situation that is hostile to Christianity, hostile to, uh, hostile to them. They're under persecution. They're suffering. They're in the crucible of affliction, right? This is, this is the context of the letter. Dark hues form the backdrop of this letter. Okay, now into that crew, into that, those suffering saints, into that group of Christians in a hostile environment, here's the first two things Peter wants them to know. Their identity. The first thing he wants them to know, that you are elect exiles, Elect, it's a profound statement about our relationship with God. Exiles, it's a profound statement about our relationship with the world. 
So, so elect is our relationship, our, our vertical relationship with God. Exiles is how we relate on a horizontal plane to the world. This is the first thing he wants these people to know. In the midst of their suffering, in the midst of their heartache, in the midst of their loss, in the midst of their tragedy, in the midst of all of that, he reminds them, you are elect exiles. So I, I want to try to unpack these things for you and, and build kind of what these things mean. So first one, he says, you are the elect now, this is that um, point in the flight where the pilot comes on and says, uh, put your seatbelt on. We expect turbulence in the future here, right? So, so here comes the elect. And, and this word would be um, synonymous with chosen, called out. That This is what Peter is saying. He's reminding them that this is who you are. You're the elect exiles of God. Okay, so um, before I unpack this, let me say a couple of things. Um, R.C. Sproul, one of my favorite theologians, I, I love what he did. The, when he pastored his first church, he had a note on the, on the kind of the side of his desk that read this. R.C., you are commanded to believe, to preach, and to teach what the Bible says is true, not what you want the Bible to say is true. So RC, that, that's your primary goal. And that's my primary goal. And this is why I love preaching through books of the Bible, by the way, because it forces us to deal with every word and every phrase. I love it and hate it. Because sometimes I know that some phrases in the Bible are going to be difficult to digest for us. And this is one of those. Okay, so, so and, and by the way, I've got a choice to make this morning as it relates to all that. I could brush aside that, kind of push it aside, or I can lift this up and use this as a great monument to the great grace of God and a great source of steady comfort for believers that are suffering. So I'm going to choose that route. Is that all right? I'm going in that direction with it. Okay, so with that, he calls us elect. First thing he says, this is your identity as a Christian. You are the elect. Now here's what that word means. It means you're chosen. You've been called out by God. This is, this is how God relates to you. Before the, before the foundation of the world, he set his affection on you. Okay, so here's what he's reminding them of. That you didn't, to, to his first century believers and to us, that you didn't convince God to take you. That God convinced you to take him. That, that from God's perspective, as it relates to your salvation, that, that, that you don't desire God and melt God's resistance toward you. God desires you and melts your resistance toward him. That this is what he's saying here. That you're called out, that you're chosen. This is what it means. That, that, that we don't convince God with our good works. He convinces us with his grace. That from God's perspective, if you're a Christian, you're not a Christian. Your Christianity, your, your kind of moment of faith didn't work like this. You, your life is not like this moment of you stiff arming God, holding God at bay, and then at some point, you informing God that he could kind of come into your life. From God's perspective, salvation works like this. God laid hold of you, set his affection on you, melted all your resistance toward him, broke down every barrier that was between you and him. And at some point in your life, he saved you. He called you as his own. This is what it means. Okay, now with that said, I'm not going to mind the depths of election in the next few minutes. Um, good luck with that. But I do want to try to bring some clarity to it and just to give you some of the, the full weight of the Bible as it relates to this issue. Okay, so that's, that's my goal. I want to say four things about it. Number one, election is biblical. Okay, now what I mean by that is that it is all throughout the Bible. Like, okay, if you, if you just start reading in the Bible, you can ignore it, but you cannot avoid it. It's everywhere. I'm telling you, it's everywhere. If you just, um, well, okay, 120 times in the Old Testament you see it, and 22 times in the New Testament you see it as a verb, 22 times as a noun. It is all over the place. If you just start reading in Genesis, here's what you're going to see. God chose to create. He didn't have to create, he chose to create. In Genesis 12, you're going to see that God chose Abraham. It wasn't because Abraham was a great guy, by the way. It, that's not what happened. It's because God is a great God that he chose Abraham. You start reading forward, you see that God chose um, Isaac, not Ishmael. He, he chose Jacob, not Esau. Esau was probably a better guy than Jacob. So, so he goes after, he sets his love on, on Jacob. You keep reading forward, you see that he chose David, not one of his brothers. Keep reading forward, you see Jeremiah, it says that God chose him, knew him in his womb, right? In his mother's womb. So you see this all throughout the Old Testament. You get into the New Testament and it's just as prevalent. God chooses the 12 disciples, it says in John, right? You, you see all throughout the Bible that it is always God's initiative. 
He is always the first mover. He is always the ultimate pursuer. Always. This is God. This is 1 John 4, 19 when it says, okay, you love God. Why do you love God? Because he first loved you. He is always that first mover, always that initiator. Okay, now here's what I want to do. I want to read through um, a series of passages for you. And, and here's my, my, my I get, at the end of the day, what, what I'm trying to do here is just to ask you the question. Do, do these passages shape the way you think about God? And if not, what does? Because here's the problem that we all have as it relates to God. We're all theologians. So it means we all have thoughts about God. We all have like things we think about and believe about God. But the question is, are we good theologians? Do we let the full weight of the Bible come to bear on how we think about God? That's the question. Are we good ones? So, so I want to read a passage or these several passages of scriptures to you and, and ask you the question. Do these things, do they, do they weigh into how you think about God? So buckle your seatbelts. I'd never heard of these until I was like 22, right? They didn't put these on the flannel board for me anywhere. Okay, so um, we're going to start with the words of Jesus in John 6. In John 6, here are words of Jesus. They are teaching this idea of election. God chooses. He he does these things. God's the pursuer. He's the initiator. Here's what it says in John 6. I'm going to read three of them here in John 6. John 6, 44 says this. No one can come to me unless the, and and can is is an issue of ability, not permission. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. 665. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the father. If you read forward in John chapter 15, here's what it says there in John chapter 15, 16. It'll be on the screen for you. And I'm going to post all these on the city so you don't have to worry about, um, you know, writing every detail down here. John 15, 16. You did not choose me, talking to the disciple, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask in the name, uh, in, the, in the father, in my name, ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Okay, so this is, this is John, or this is Jesus's word speaking about this. Okay, then I want to give you some words of Luke here. We'll, we'll go to Luke. This is Acts 9. This is Luke recording Paul's conversion, and this is God speaking to Ananias. Luke records it this way, but the Lord said to him, go, for he, Paul, is a chosen, an elected instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Okay, then you've got the words of Paul. Now, this passage to me is like one of those that totally wrecked how I thought about God, okay? Um, Romans chapter 9, I'm going to read 12 verses here for you, starting in verse 10. Romans chapter 9, it'll be on the screen for you as well, so you can read along there or, or turn there in your Bible. Romans chapter 9, verse 10. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done neither good or bad. Okay, so they hadn't done anything yet. God's saying that it's not on their merit. It's not on their works. They hadn't done anything good or bad. In order that God's purpose, and here's our word, of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call. She was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. Now listen to what happens in verse 14. He anticipates this response. Are you serious? He anticipates that response. Look at what he says in the next passage in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Verse 16. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Verse 17. For the scriptures say to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he may have mercy on whomever he wills and harden whomever he wills. He's saying, I rose Pharaoh up so I could cut him down. He anticipates the response again in the next verse. This response. Are you serious? No, watch. Here it comes again. Verse 19. You will, uh, you will say to me then, why, do, why does he find fault? I mean, what is wrong with God here? He's anticipating that response. For who can resist his will? Verse 20. Look at Paul's response to him. To this anticipated response. Wow, sorry about that. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? So I, I didn't even know that existed in the Bible until I was like 22. It's amazing. Um, let me uh, go to Revelation chapter 17. This is the words of John. 
In Revelation 17, 12 through 14, he says this, and the 10 horns that, saw, that you saw are the 10 kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. Kind of crazy language here. These are, the, the, these are of one mind and hand over their power and authority to the beast. Verse 14, they will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them. For he is the Lord of lords and the king of kings. And those with him, Christians, that those who are at God's side here, th- those people are called, here's our word again, are chosen and are faithful, right? So you see it again. Let me give you one more in Peter. It's used three times in the book of Peter. Same word. In 1 Peter 2, 9, if you want to flip over there in chapter 2, Peter says this, but you are a chosen race. That has nothing to do with ethnicity. That has everything to do with spirituality. You are a chosen people, he says, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies who've called you out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. This is what I mean when I say it's all over the Bible. It's like The question becomes, what do you do with that? And so I think when you look at all that, here's what you've got to decide. How does that shape your view of God? How does that shape it? Does that come to bear on how you think about the sovereignty of God over the world? And see, like, this is what passages like this do for us. When passages that are kind of outside of our theological box come down, right, when the alarms start to sound, we've got one of two responses— Either we lop off those branches and just say, you know what? They're outside the box, so I'm going to ignore them. They don't exist anymore, right? So we can lop them off or we can say, you know what? Our box is not bringing in the full weight of what the Bible says about God. So we need a bigger box to think about God with. See, those are the two options. And, And just to encourage you, make sure your box is big enough to bring the full weight of the Bible onto how you think about God and life and you and your identity. It says you're elect. It's a biblical idea. Okay, that's the first thing. Second thing about it, in le- election engulfs us in God. Now, I want you to look at 1 Peter 2, chap- or chapter 1, verse 2. Election engulfs us in God. Like what you're going to see in this verse in chapter 2, of verse, or in uh, verse 2 of chapter 1, is you see the full Trinity, God the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all at work in your salvation all at work in this. Okay, watch it, verse two. It says, according to, so your elect exiles, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. So you see the full Trinity at work here. And when you think about your salvation, that, that all parts of the Trinity, all parts of God are at work in bringing you to faith. I, I want you to see what it says here. It says, first of all, your salvation was architected by God the Father. The Father architects your salvation. He plans it. Okay, now, when some people read this verse and others like it, when they see the word foreknowledge, here's what they think. Okay, so that knocks kind of the rough edge off of election. And and because, okay, so their thinking goes like this, that God looks down the quarter of time. He knows that we're going to choose him, so he chooses us. Okay, that's how some people think about foreknowledge. The problem is that's not what foreknowledge means. Okay, so when you see the word know in the Bible or foreknow in the Bible, foreknowledge in the Bible, um, that's a pregnant word. In other words, there is a lot kicking in there, right? It's a pregnant word. So in Genesis chapter 4, you, you see that it says this in Genesis 4, chapter, uh, chapter 4, verse 1. It says that Adam knew Eve. She bore a son, Cain. Okay, now when you see the word know there, does that mean that Adam knew about Eve? You don't know about a person and get a person pregnant, do you? You know, that's not how it works. It's talking about this, this know that it's more than just know about them. It is, I, I know them in an intimate way. I have set my affection on them. It's that kind of know, right? Okay, now when it says foreknowledge, this is what it means. It's not just knowing about something. It means that God set his affection on you. It is this, um, it's a reflection of this eternal affection of God where, where he breaks down every barrier that stands between you and him, that, that he pursues you with an everlasting love. It's that kind of foreknow, that I set my affection on you. I mean, it's an it's a incredible thing to think about that for the foundation of the world, God architected this thing, that, that he looked at you before you were even born and said, I love that person. Okay, now listen to Charles Spurgeon explain foreknowledge in words that I could never think of, right? Um, he says it this way. 
In the very beginning, when this great universe lay in the mind of God, like unborn forest in the acorn cup. I just love that. I mean, who thinks of that? Like an unborn forest in an acorn cup. Long ere the echoes awoke the solitude, long before the mountains were brought forth, and long uh, ere the light flashed through the sky, God loved his chosen creatures. Before there was any created being, when space itself had not an existence, when there was nothing save God alone, Even then, in that loneliness of deity and in that deep quiet and profundity, his bowels moved with love for his chosen. Their names were written on his heart. And when and when they and then were they dear to his soul. Jesus loved his people before the foundation of the world, even from eternity. And when he called me by his grace, he said to me, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. This is a picture of God, how he loves you. If you're a Christian, you see that? It's brilliant. He says, okay, so, so we've got in verse two, verse two here that the father architects salvation. And then the son, Jesus, accomplishes salvation. Look at the last little part of that phrase. It says, for sprinkling with his blood, the blood of Jesus, for sprinkling with his blood. It brings us back to some Old Testament imagery here where in Exodus 24, you've got essentially the the covenant with God and his people being inaugurated. So, So God is making a covenant. He will be gracious. He will love these people. He will set his affection on them. And and here's what Moses does. He slaughters an ox, an innocent animal. And here's what that's picturing here. It's this picture of, of the wrath of God that was meant for the people. The people deserve the wrath of God, but instead of them giving Getting the wrath of God, it was poured out on this innocent animal. And, and that Exodus 24 picture, sprinkling the blood on the people, that Exodus 24 people finds its fulfillment in Jesus. When God sent Jesus to accomplish our salvation, he sent him to live a perfect life in place of our imperfect life, to die an undeserving death in place of the death that you and I deserve, so that in our place on the cross, he could absorb all of the wrath that we deserve. This is how Jesus accomplishes our salvation. You see this? That, that he, he, he absorbs all of that wrath. He's risen again on the third day, demonstrating his power over sin, death, and Satan. See, Jesus is the one who accomplishes our salvation for us. And then it's going to say that the Spirit applies that salvation. See the, the phrase in the middle there? In the sanctification of the Spirit, it's the Spirit who applies that salvation. In the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus. It's the Father who sent the Son. Okay, Jesus is resurrected, back, at, back with the Father. And it's the Father and Son who send the Spirit. Here's what the Spirit does for you. That word sanctification, its broadest kind of understanding, means to be set apart. And the Spirit applies that salvation. He sets you apart for that salvation. He opens the eyes of your heart so you can see God and love God. And, and when you think about Jesus, you love Jesus. This is what He does. He sets you apart to belong to God. He, he connects you to God so that, listen to this, so that all the saving benefits that Jesus secured for you on the cross actually become your saving benefits. This is what the Spirit of God does for you. And he not only sets you apart to belong to God, he also empowers you to live a life of faith for God. This is the work of the Spirit. You see how the, you see how the whole Trinity is, is involved here? When you think about salvation, that it's all the Godhead at work in saving you. It's all the Godhead at work. I mean, it's a beautiful thing when you think about how it is that you are saved. If you're a Christian, how that is that you became one. It is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working for that for you. So election engulfs us in God. Number three, third thing about election. Election is not at odds with the necessity of faith. Now, I think it's really, really, really important that we hear this. Election is not at odds with the necessity of faith. The Bible upholds both of those, that God is absolutely sovereign and that you are absolutely responsible. This isn't fatalistic, right? In Romans chapter nine, you have one of the clearest examples of the sovereignty of God over all parts of our life. In Romans chapter 10, you have one of the clearest pictures of the responsibility of people. If you don't believe, you will not be saved. If we don't preach, people will not believe. So you've got the clearest, you've got both of those in back-to-back chapters. Romans 9, sovereignty. Romans 10, responsibility. I love what Charles Spurgeon said. One time he was asked, okay, so, so what do you do to reconcile these two things? Sovereignty and, and our responsibility. He said this, why do I have to reconcile friends? In the Bible, they're friends. They're not contrary to one another. 
They're friends in the Bible. I love what J.I. Packer says to kind of address this issue in his book, The Evangelism, The Sovereignty of God. He says, God is first king. That means he's sovereign over everything. But he is second judge. And that means that we're responsible to him, to respond appropriately to him. See, see, king is sovereignty. Judge is you're responsible. So the Bible upholds both of those. Both of those are biblical. Both of those are good. Both of those are needed. You need to hear both of those two things. That, that election does not negate the necessity of faith. Fourth, election is important. Now let me just kind of bring this to bear on 1 Peter. Now remember our context here. Because here's what happens as soon as something like this is talked about, like the theological wars ensue, right? I mean, it, th- this whole word is just the object of theological, like this doctrine is like the object of theological wars. When in reality, listen to this, this doctrine should be the object of our worship. That's the difference in these two things. To think about the context of 1 Peter. He is writing to suffering saints. They have been beaten down. Some of them have seen friends killed because they're Christians. They're in the crucible of suffering. You see this? I mean, they are in the heart-wrenching furnace of affliction. And Peter says, let me remind you of who you are in God. You are elect. You are chosen by God, called by God. You know what that means for you? That he set his love upon you before the foundation of the world. You know what that means for you? He isn't going to let you go in the midst of this. He isn't going to forsake you in the midst of your suffering. That you can count on God. That God is there. That your hope can be in God. That there will actually be a day that this God who set his affection on you before the foundation of the world, when this world passes, there will actually be a day that you can hope in that you'll never have suffering again. Do you see how profound that is in the midst of suffering? See, if we get it out of the context of theological debate and put it on the ground floor of everyday life, it becomes something that we can worship around, not debate around. This is the way God treats us and loves us and comes after us. I was 21 years old before I read these passages of Scripture. And when I first read them, I'll never forget having this thought of, how dare you, God? I'll never forget having this thought. I mean, it, it literally just offended my senses. Like my pride was just slapped to the floor reading these things. And over the course of a couple of years, I I found out that, wow, these things are all throughout the Bible. But but over the course of those couple of years, here's what happened to me. They went from being an object of controversy for me to an object of great comfort for me. That I know that for for some reason I could never explain that God has set his affection on me. Not because I'm a good guy, but in spite of me not being one. Do you see what, do you see the profound, do you see what that causes in the way you would live your daily life if we start to believe that, start to live in that? That for some reason, God set his his affection on you. I have no idea why he did it for you. Why he did it for me? Do you see what kind of hope that gives you in the midst of difficult, difficult days? You get cancer, your son or daughter dies, your parent dies. You see what kind of hope that gives you? That God actually loves you in the midst of that? So first thing he wants them to know is you are elect. You're chosen by me. I love you. I've set my affection on. I've determined to break down every resistance that you would have to me so I can save you. And then second thing he says is this, that you're not only elect, but you're also exiles. You're also exiles. And this deals with our relationship with the world. See, being elect, here's what this ultimately means for us. That our loyalty, that our allegiance is not, it's not ultimately to a country. It's not ultimately to a community. It's not ultimately to a family. It's not ultimately to a job, to an employer. That our allegiance is ultimately to God. And you know, what? if you're elect by God, you know what that means for your relationship with the world? That you're rejected by the world. That you're exiles in the world. See, this is how the play works. Elected by God means you're exiles on this planet. Okay, now you see the word uh, dispersion there? The elect exiles of the dispersion. That, that is a word that would be familiar to the people reading the letter. And in 586 BC, the people of, Israel, or the people of Jerusalem were overrun and uh, their city was conquered and they were led off to foreign countries. And so in the middle of foreign countries, they, they, they found themselves as foreigners. They found themselves on foreign soil. They found themselves as sojourners, it says in verse 11, as pilgrims, as resident kind of temporary citizens in a different kingdom, right? And so he's using that sort of a picture to describe their relationship with the world now. 
That, that just like these, these Jews that were transported out of their homeland and given a different one, as a Christian, this is what you are. That when you are saved by God, that he transports you, right? I mean, you're, you're into a new kingdom of his now. You've got a different citizenship now. You've got a different loyalty now. You've got a different allegiance now. You have a different king now. And that makes you an exile here. That makes you a pilgrim here. That makes you a temporary resident here. Okay, now I don't want you to hear the wrong thing in that. Here would be the wrong conclusion. So why do we care about the world then? If we're just exiles, if we're just like these temporary residents passing through pilgrims on the planet, why do we care about what happens here? Isn't that kind of like polishing furniture as the Titanic is sinking? Okay, the answer is no to that. That's the wrong thing. We're not making a call to be an isolationist to be like a segregationist. That's not the call here. The the call is to live in your identity as elect on one hand and exiles on the other hand. That that you're to live in your identity as called by God here, a new citizen here, but that God has left you on planet earth for a reason, to display his gospel, to be good missionaries of Jesus. You're elect exiles. Okay, so when I think about just the whole idea of exiles, Now, I I think about just ministry life for me, and there has been a lot of my ministry life that has been marked by a failure to see that I'm in exile. And I'm amazed at this even in the church. I, I think one of the dominant strategies of the church to reach our culture goes like this. We need to be cool in culture. And if we can be cool in culture and approved by culture, then we can actually reach culture. And can I just say, this is, this is a big idea when you think of exiles. That is not the way you reach culture. Listen, being cool in culture is not the way God has said we're going to reach culture. Being fashionable in culture is not the way that God has said we're going to reach culture. Big idea here. This is the way God has said you're going to reach culture, is you're going to live as your identity as elect exiles in culture. You're going to live in such a way and worship in such a way that the world will see that there is like an impossibility of them being all that God's created them to be apart from Jesus. That's the way that we're to reach culture, to live differently from culture, as exiles here. And I just wonder if some of us have bought into the lie that what we really need to do is is, is kind of blend into culture. And we're not talking about contextualization. We're talking about, and that, that would be trying to speak the language of culture in a culturally appropriate way. That's a good thing. But we're talking about at all ends trying to be cool to culture in an effort to reach it. And that's not what our culture needs. Our culture needs Christians who are different than the world. That's what we need. That's the idea here. That we're elect and we're exiles. And that word exiles, the idea is that there should be an unsettledness about you. That there should be a disconnect in some ways between you and the culture. That this is not your home and that you're not living as if it's your home. That there is a difference in what you, you long for and love. That there is a difference between you and culture and what you hope for, your vision and values in life. There's a difference in that, that we live differently as it relates to sex and as it relates to how we deal with enemies and how we forgive. That there should be a difference in the way that we do marriage. There should be a difference in the way that we work. There should be a difference in every area of our life. This is what it means to live as elect exiles. That there is an unsettledness, a disconnect, that we are out of step and odd in culture because of what the gospel has done to us. That's the idea. So I want to protect this, that it's not you becoming an isolationist, that we create, kind of retreat behind our front doors and create this whole Christian subculture so we never have to deal with the culture out there. That is not the idea. It means that we are elected. We understand the gospel, that God has come after us, loved us, pursued us, that he wants to save people. And we live as exiles, that we are missionaries of God, meant to display the glory of God and the gospel of God, that we have the gospel on our lips, and that we display it with our lives. This is what it means to live as elect on one hand, exiles on the other. And may God move us there, right? May God start to do this in us. May God start to to bring this down over us in here. So so maybe I can end with a couple of questions for you. Are you living in a way that contradicts culture? Out of step with culture? Different than, are you living in a way that's like that? Are you living in such a way that you're inviting culture to come and taste and experience and see Jesus? Are you living in such a way that you really think this is home for you? Are you too settled here? Do you have like this dual citizenship thing going? Well, okay, I know I'm a citizen of heaven, but like I'm also 
Are, are you too settled? And we'll finish by this. If you're not a Christian in this room, you're an unbeliever, th- there is an invitation in the first two verses of 1 Peter to come and get Jesus, to respond in faith to Jesus. If, if God is wooing you and drawing you, if he's at work in you, that today would be a day that you respond by pointing all of your affection at Jesus, that you would trust Jesus, that you would respond in faith to Jesus, trusting and treasuring him, that you would believe in him. And listen, if you do that today, God will save you. God will save you. The Father who architected it, the Son who accomplished it, the Spirit today will apply it. Amen? Let's pray. I love how um, Peter finishes the first um, two verses. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. And I pray that as we study this, this chapter in this letter, that God would multiply grace and mercy to us. He would multiply it. Not just add it, but multiply it. And so God, I want to pray for my friends in this room. God, I pray that, um, that you would give us a deep, deep awareness in our life that we are elect and that we are exiles. God, one, would give us great confidence in all that you have pledged and promised to be for us. And one would give us great purpose as we live on this planet. So God, will you bring those two things together for us? God, God, will you do that here? God, will you give us great confidence in you and great purpose in the world? God, will you you help us be by your power, faithful Christians loving you and faithful missionaries serving our world. God, will you, will you give us an unsettledness, a disconnect? God, will you, will you help us be okay with being a peculiar and odd people? God, God, will you pound into us that we are strangers here, that we are citizens of your kingdom, not this one? God, by your grace, will you do those things? God, for those that don't know you, God, I pray that, that this would be a moment where they respond in trust to you, giving, them, giving you their life. God, and they would respond by treasuring you, setting you as the ultimate affection, loyalty, allegiance to you. God, I pray both would happen. It's in your good name we pray. Amen. Why don't you stand with us? Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.